0: Oh, Holy Father, it is so good to be in your presence this morning. We thank you for the ability and opportunity to gather together as your people today. Truly, Lord, as the psalmist declared, you are the rock of our salvation. May you hear our praise and worship this morning, and may it be a joy to the ears as your kids worship your great and amazing name. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for life. We thank you for the Rourke family, and as Lexi is in the hospital today, we pray that today would be the day that we get to welcome baby Delilah into the world. We pray that you would be with the doctors and the nurses. May they know that they are caring for your children this morning. May you give them wisdom above all other doctors and nurses that would surpass their understanding of the school they received. May it be your your will be done this morning, Lord Jesus. May that delivery go well. May you give Brian compassion for his wife and help her through the delivery process. But we just pray for health for uh, Lexi and Delilah Lord. Lord Jesus, may we never grow weary of thanking you for pulling us out of the pits of sin and destruction. Without you, Lord Jesus, we have absolutely no hope at all. With this one aspect of your amazing love to us, you would be worthy of all our praise, but you took it even further than this and provided us with a relationship to yourself and have promised us an eternity with perfect relationship and worship of you alone without any distraction of sin. For this, Lord Jesus, we give you thanks and submit our lives to your amazing kingship. Use us Lord Jesus, however you see fit. We come before we come together this morning and ask you Father, to be with all of the people throughout the world that are struggling through military conflict this very moment. We pray for the war between Israel and Hamas. So much death has already happened, so much destruction, so much hurt through kidnapping, ransom, and torture. This is not your will, Father. We pray that the sinful hearts of man will not prevail. May the good news of your gospel be spread. May you use what evil men are doing to draw people to the only hope that really exists, which is hope in you and you alone. Be with these people, Lord Jesus. We pray for ourselves, Lord, in a moment of confession. It is easy for us to see the hurt and pain that uh, wars bring. It is easy to denounce the murders and destruction that happened during war. But then we turn around and treat our spouses poorly. We snap at our kids. We don't act honorably in our workplaces. Change our hearts, Lord Jesus. Don't let us be content in our sin and our portrayal of you as we proclaim you to be our savior and our king. Help us to confess our sins one to another. Don't let us trivialize our actions and convince ourselves that this isn't so bad. Help us be submitted to you as our Lord and King. I thank you this morning for this local body, Lord. I am beyond blessed to call these people my brothers and sisters. Help us, Lord, to see beyond these four walls. We pray that you would use this church in its partnership with others that desire to proclaim your gospel to the world. May you work through our partnership with Salem for Refugees, Mission Aviation Fellowship and the Taves Family, IJM, Compassion International, and the Pastors Conference in Africa. May we all partner together with the desire to share your gospel message with a lost world that is so desperately in need of a savior. Thank you, Jesus, for my brother Hans and the time that he has put into studying your word for our sermon this morning. We thank you for this current series we are studying to remind us of the great and desperate need to recognize you as Lord over every aspect of our lives. May your church have open ears to hear your word this morning. In your great and holy name I pray. Amen.
1: Amen. Thank you, Michael. It's good to see you all this morning. You're all in great voice. Well done on the worship side there. It's great to stand in the back and listen to you all. You can turn to Romans 1, 16 through 25 this morning. That's the text that we're going to be in. Romans 1, 16 through 25. Relationships are based upon a knowledge of one another. To even have a relationship, we must know of someone. Someone. There are billions of, the peop- billions of people on the planet right now that you do not have a relationship with because you do not know of them. And the deeper we get into an understanding of the truth of who someone is, the more intimate our relationship becomes. The Old Testament even portrays this through the translation into the English of the phrase that a husband and wife would know one another in sexual intimacy. To know was to be intimate, even in the fullest sense of physical expression. And so relationship takes knowledge. How awkward it is then when a relationship is formed based upon the wrong understanding of one another. Have you ever had this happen? I think there's a great Seinfeld episode about this. (laughs) We understand wrong information about people. And this happens because it's normal for all of us to take our experiences, our baggage, our history, and use it to construct categories and judgments about the other party without ever having any actual verifiable information. In the worst senses of this, we do this in things like racism or stereotyping. But in the more soft senses, we do this with everyone because we're not omniscient. We can't immediately know about someone else and so we create entire false realities about one another all the time. Have you ever gotten to know someone for a while only to realize partway into the relationship that you've been calling them the wrong name. Has that ever happened to you? (laughs) It's happened to me. It is not fun when you figure it out. Or maybe you believe something about a person that was factually untrue, only to have it somewhat rock your world when you find out that your understanding of them was incorrect. Just recently, my wife and I were reminiscing about when I proposed to her. And while we both acknowledged that I there was great effort in it, and we both obviously were very happy with the outcome, I realized in the midst of our discussion that pretty much none of it was done with a realistic understanding of my wife and what she desired. In fact, the opinions that I polled at the time, being a somewhat dumb 20-something-year-old, no offense, 20-something-year-olds, I was (laughs) dumb. I'm not saying you are, right? It was done with a With uh, the opinions that I polled uh, in order to perform the proposal and the ideas I came up with myself, these were what really were innately fine, but they were not based upon a truth of Kelly. And so while the proposal was to her, everything about it was really about me or about the people that I asked. And they were not based upon the truth of who she was and is. You see, I was completely in love with this woman, still am, To the point that I wanted to spend my life with her, and yet my knowledge of the truth of who she is in reality was lacking. Praise God for her grace to accept me anyway. She's probably hiding really tightly behind the monitor back there. (laughs) But isn't this true in a lot of relational cases? We think we know a friend, a roommate, a spouse, a parent, even a child because we have created a construct in our mind of who they are, and yet when more understanding is provided, we are challenged to grow in our understanding of who they are. I find this with parents as their kids grow a lot as well. And what I found in my own friendships, my own marriage, my own relationship with my kids, is that it is normal and natural for me to form my idea of who the other person is, but the healthiest way to relate is actually to let them inform that view themselves and then work to accept it rather than creating my own view. This is what builds relationship. Now this is true for most of our relationships as well as for how we know ourselves, but I would suggest to you that it is probably most true for how we relate to God. For we do this very same thing with God. We take the very finite and stunted understanding we have of God oftentimes based upon random variables in our lives, attachment figures, opinions we've heard, current experiences or emotions, we take these and we create an understanding of God. And then, worst of all, we walk in a kind of subconscious arrogance, believing that we know who God is. And this, my friends, is what it is to place ourselves as Lord over God. This is idolatry. We make God to be what we want Him to be, rather than what He is in actuality, in objective truth. We use our subjective experiences and knowledge to build a God that will submit to our opinions and beliefs. How many times, for example, have you heard people say something along the lines of, well, I can't really believe in a God who, and then fill in the blank. There are few phrases in the English language that declare more authority and lordship than that. Think about that phrase for a moment. I couldn't believe in a God who, who are you establishing as Lord in that moment? You. And I would suggest to you that while the pagan world is expert at building these idols, self-professed Christians are not far off. How often do we, in our narcissistic lordship, proclaim to know who God is and then make decisions based on what to accept or what to dismiss in his word because it fits with our subjective experiences and opinions. I couldn't believe in a God who. To be a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ then is to acknowledge this tendency in ourselves, to know that it's there, that we are each born with it, and then to repent of it, and to repent of it every moment of every day of our lives. We must recognize that we do this so easily and without even thinking. And because of this, we must instead be proactive, proactive in our pursuit of knowing who God is in the objective truth that he has revealed to us. You see, he's told us who he is, and so we must pursue that rather than sitting comfortably in our ill-informed and often deceived view of who he is. The faithful uh, theologian John Murray put it exquisitely when he said this, The mind of a man, or a woman, is never a religious vacuum. If there is the absence of the true, there is always the presence of the false." And so last week, we set the stage for the message we're going to see today. We saw that only God can define truth. Only he can say what is reality, especially about himself. And to use our finite, subjective opinions, experiences, and feelings to define reality is the height of trying to be authority over all that is around us. But we are not the authority. Only God is. And all authority that exists in this world is derived from his And because of this, we must look to his revealing of the truth of himself rather than our own opinions to fully understand who God is. We must constantly be looking at what we believe about God, what we've learned even from the basics to see if it truly squares up with what he has revealed to us. And this is how we know when we do this regularly that we are allowing him to be Lord over our understanding rather than our understanding attempting to be Lord over him. And friends, this is a work in progress until the day that we stand before him. In Romans 1, the apostle Paul will spend time today proclaiming this very thing to us. He will show us how God has revealed himself as Lord. He will point out our refusal to accept this fact of objective truth. And then he will show how the gospel of Jesus Christ confirms and solidifies the fact that the creator God is Lord over his creation. This morning, we will be looking at Romans 1, 16 through 25, where we will see that God reveals himself as Lord. God reveals himself as Lord. And you might say, Hans, we know this, but friends, we're going back to the basics. And this is one of the clearest, most basic things that we need to understand about the God that we serve and the God that has saved us. He reveals himself as Lord. So let's go ahead and read our passage now in fullness, and then we will break it down. Take a look there at Romans 1, starting in verse 16, going through verse 25. "'For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith.'" For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who's blessed forever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Now, in order to break down what Paul is saying, I'm not going to go through in linear order of his words, but in the order of the events in relation to God's revelation. And so the first item of note that Paul brings up here is that the creation reveals that the creator is Lord. The creation reveals that the creator is Lord The old saying goes, for there to be a creation, there must be a creator. But we also need to refine it a bit more than that. The doctrine of creation states that the created world must have been formed by a being who alone is uncreated and external. One who alone has the characteristic called aseity. We've talked about this before, everybody say aseity. Aseity is very important because it is that characteristic of self-existence. And if you think about it, that means only one being can probably have it. And because he is self-existent, he alone can then give existence to everything outside of himself. He is therefore transcendent or beyond and above the creation that he has formed by the power of his word. And because he is the one who has formed and created it, God is then the sole authority over it. He is what we would call Lord over it. And friends, this is not a power grab. We have to almost set aside the fact that we see lordship in the human realm as a uh, shadowy mirror of what lordship is, and we have to think about it from its purest standpoint because his lordship over his creation is not a power grab. It is simply the state of what is. He can't help but be the authority because he is the creator. And this is what Paul is stating here in verses 19 and 20 specifically. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. God has manifested truth to the perception of the creation, that he exists as creator, and he is therefore Lord over creation, and it is as plain as can be. This is the theological topic of general revelation. General revelation is general truth that can be known about God for the general audience of all creation. In other words, all created beings can and should be able to grasp the truth that general revelation makes known. Psalm 19 that we covered a while back, Uh, verses one through three makes this clear as well. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Even in the most secular, materialistic view of the origins of the universe, you have two pieces of material hitting together to create the universe. And the question always becomes, what is transcendent outside of that material realm in order to have created that or made that exist? You can never get past this, even though the secular world wants to fight it like crazy. The existence and the activity of God are clear in what has been made. General revelation makes it so that no creation can claim that it did not know of God's position as creator, and therefore Lord and Master over that creation. Well, then notice that Paul breaks this down by noting two specific characteristics that are manifested and displayed by the general revelation of creation. You can see them right there in your text. They are eternal power and divine nature. Eternal power is a statement of his rule and his authority. There is no one higher who creation must answer to. God, the creator, is the ultimate authority and judge. And this was what was so spelled, uh, spelled out so clearly from the reading from Ephesians as it discussed Christ as Lord. But it's getting a bit ahead of us. It's getting to our third point where we'll talk about Christ as Lord. At this point, general revelation says that God the Father, the creator, is in that position of lordship. He is the highest authority. It is the characteristic, it is this characteristic that gives him the role of controlling the destiny of the creation, eternal power. Secondly then, is divine nature. Divine nature is an aggregation or a summation of all that makes him God. It's everything that is divine. The characteristic of a deity or self-existence is obvious to anyone that is wrestling with the origins of creation. All of creation must have an origin. There cannot simply be an endless cycle of creations that are antecedent to the next creation. So there must be at the beginning a deity that transcends the creation, one who is outside and over it, yet active within it. Both of these, the existence of God as the ultimate origin and the power of God as the ultimate rule and authority, these are self-evident in creation. Paul uh, Paul says that not only do they exist, they have been made as clearly evident as possible to all of creation. For you can't walk past a sandcastle that's been crafted out of the chaos of the sand on the beach without realizing that there was one who built it, making order out of chaos. Similarly, you can't look at one molecule of creation without seeing an immense logic and creativity of one who makes order out of the chaos. And this is evident, Paul notes, the second that creation happened. As soon as there were eyes to perceive it, it was known. Very similar to the fact that as soon as we were born, we knew that we needed some help. It was self-evident. But let's dig into that eternal power item a bit more. Our society knows inherently that when someone makes something, they have authority over it. This is the basis of copyright law. This is the basis of finders keepers in a sense. This is what is, needed, uh, what is behind the need to properly cite sources when writing and doing research. This is what makes plagiarism unethical. And if you want to get even more basic than that, imagine your household. Those in a household can all have equal access to bread, meat, and cheese in the house, but if you go and you just simply assemble these and leave it for a moment on the counter and your sibling eats it, you have the right to be upset. Why? Because you created it. It's yours. You are lord of the sandwich. (laughs) We inherently know this truth. If someone makes something, They have authority over it. So the most objective truth of all is that the creator that formed creation, the one we refer to by the title God, he is the Lord over that creation. And to be Lord over something means, listen, someone having power, authority, and influence, a master, a ruler, When we say that God is Lord, it means that God is the one who has power over our lives to do with as he pleases. And you'll immediately know if he is Lord of your life, depending upon your reaction to that statement. He is the power over our lives to do with as he pleases. He is the authority that gets to determine good and evil, wrong and right, judge us for our evil actions, and promote in us our good actions. He is the greatest influence in our life that directs our conscious thoughts, our actions, and how we relate to one another. And he is the one who sets the principles for our conduct. He is our ruler and our master. We work for and by Him. It's amazing to me how often people get upset at this idea when He is the one that chose where we were born, when we were born, what we look like, what our DNA is, the family we have, the parents we have. And then somehow we grow up thinking we have a right to declare Him evil for doing so. I'm getting ahead of myself. Another way of saying all of this is that he is sovereign over his creation. He is the one that possesses ultimate authority and rule and power over creation. He can do with it as he pleases. To say he is Lord is to say he is sovereign, and to say he is sovereign is to say he is Lord. To say that he is only a good Lord if he grants some level of that lordship back to us, is to state clearly that he is not your Lord. The creation reveals that the creator is Lord over it, and so all of creation has no excuse to dismiss this, deny it, or say that we don't understand it. It is a fundamental, objective truth upon which all other truths rest. Unfortunately, even as clear as it is, the creation, you and me, mankind as a whole, is not so willing to have someone as Lord over us. And that is what we see next in Paul's statements. The creation refuses to acknowledge the creator's place as Lord. The creation refuses to acknowledge the creator's place as Lord. Let's look again at verses 21 through 23. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. This is what Paul's getting at with the statement that mankind is without excuse at the end of verse uh, 22 there. They're, excuse me, 20, so they are without excuse. Or put another way, their actions are indefensible. They have no defense for their or our actions. What actions are those? Well, it is specifically two things. First, it is to deny his authority to define himself. That's the first thing, to deny his authority to define himself. And secondly, it was then to take on that authority ourselves and redefine who he is, and then promote it amongst ourselves. To deny his authority define himself, and then to take on that authority and redefine who he is. Now let's look at the first. They first denied his authority to define himself. They denied and pushed aside everything that we just talked about in the first main point. Humanity knew that the creator God exists and that he is their maker, but they did not honor him or give thanks to him. Both of these statements speak to denying his authority. Now, pause for a second, and let's take it from global down to specific. Friends, there have been so many times in my life where I go an entire day, and I don't give him thanks once. And I'm talking about meals, definitely, because without God, there is no food. There's starvation. But I'm talking about more than that, I'm talking about the accident I almost got in the other day and how I could have been in the accident. Who did I give praise to? Grace that people give me when I put my foot in my mouth. Do I give thanks to God for that because they're showing me his grace? Correction when I need it. Am I giving God thanks for that? How often in my life am I giving thanks? And if you're like me, you have to admit, well, I might be a little bit higher than the normal average person who's not a believer, but that's not a good thing to say. That's not a great bar to set, right? And so I can look at this and I can say, well, yes, look at humanity and how terrible we are, but in reality, I'm looking at a mirror of myself. Lord, give me a heart to be thankful to you. Both of these statements, denying him honor and giving him thanks, both of these statements speak to denying his authority in our lives. To honor a ruler is to pay homage to them as the authority is to acknowledge that they are the ruler and you are the adherent to their rule. It is to regard them with great respect and to fulfill the agreement that you have with them as your ruler. All of this pendulum shift in in our society, in Christianity uh, over the last few decades from giving him reverence and high liturgy to Jesus is my homie, Right? You guys remember that, well, if you were alive in the 90s and early 2000s, right? Uh, It it was the shift, right? And we think, oh, well, because it's about relationship. Well, guys, yes, but when you have relationship to someone who deserves respect, do you just throw that out, that honor and that reverence? High liturgy is too formal. It keeps me too separated from God. Go try and run into the White House and sit down for tea with the president. See how quickly you need to honor that position and that role. If you have relationship with the president, and I'm not talking about any one president, I'm talking about the role of president, even if you are his best, most closest compatriot, the chief of staff, what do you have to call him? Mr. President. Nobody gets to call him Joe or George, right? Why? Because there's a respect that is due to them. Just like with God, if you have a relationship with God, Yes, he is your friend, but he's also your Lord. Does your relationships show that level of respect? It's to regard with great respect this person that is your Lord. It's to regard them with so much respect that you fulfill the agreement that you have with them as a subject to a ruler. And it's also to give them thanks. In our culture, this makes very little sense because we have all bought into the deception that we are independent and self-made, or we simply believe we are entitled. Parents, one of the most important things you can teach your children to do in order to be worshipers of God is to be thankful at every turn. If you let your children just go through life expecting everything, do you really think they're going to be great worshipers of their Lord? Most likely not. But this idea, this deception of self-made people, even 100 years ago, this didn't exist. You were at the mercy of those in authority over you. A bad interaction with a boss, for example, and you wouldn't be able to find a job the rest of your life. 100 years before that, in most of the world, the peasants were dependent upon the Lord for work, for money, and for food. The origin of our word Lord in the English actually comes from a phrase in Old English that means the one who provides you bread. That's why it is part of how Jesus taught us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. For a Lord is also a provider. One would appeal in such a manner to their Lord or to their ruler. In response to such provision, the peasant, the subject, would provide back thanksgiving to the Lord that benevolently provided for them. And our current cultural sensibilities respond with vitriol to such an idea, and our voices start to cry oppression. But guys, that can only come from a spoiled, deceived, arrogant humanity that does not realize that none of us are self-made. And God has every right to do anything with us at any given point in time. We are all dependent upon some authority above us to give protection, order, and provision. Guys, it is a complete falsehood that this democracy we have has no authority in it. Watch what happens when authority starts to remove these things protection, provision, and order. You can see it in our world right now. We need authority. We are not made to be without authority. And this is why Paul, in his letter to the Colossians, noted three times that true worship centers around hearts of thanksgiving to this provider of order, of structure, of rules. It is the mark of one who truly knows God as Lord that their hearts overflow with thanksgiving for all things. But mankind as a whole has not done this. We have cast aside the truth that the creator is Lord over his creation. And then after we denied his authority to define who he is, we went even further and we redefined who he is. And this is the next line of Paul's statement. Humanity became futile in their thinking. This word futile means to become worthless, to become nonsense. Nonsense. We gave up the idea of truth and logic and instead gladly walked in deception and lies. Our hearts became darkened. In other words, our hearts, our seat of intellect and understanding became blinded to the objective truth. We were so busy doing nonsense that we were blinded to the truth. And what was it that resulted in the spiritual and mental blindness and ignorance? It was the act of claiming to be wise that actually made us fools. Notice what it says there, verse 22. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. It is not that we were really fools, but just simply claimed not to be so. It was that in claiming to be wise, we became fools. For we claim that we could become the source of objective truth and the ones capable of defining who God is and what he is like. I could never believe in a God who. It's foolish. But the second we did so, the second we took on this ability to be quote-unquote wise, it pushed us into the foolishness of bondage under the deceiver's grasp. We bought into the deceiver's desire for us to seek God, not in reality, but in our subjective experience of him. We looked at this last week with the garden. And in so doing, we removed him as Lord and placed that mantle on our own shoulders. We, mankind said, are the ones that define truth because we are the ones that define God. But our foolishness was obvious because rather than defining a being that is transcendent above creation, one who can do with us as he pleases, we could only use creation to define him. We don't even have the ability to come up with words or images or pictures of him. We exchanged the glory of the originator and creator of the universe with the creation itself. We took what was transcendent and eternal and made it finite and material. And this was the core and primary sin of God. This was what resulted in the fall from grace and glory and severed our connection with our creator and sent us into spiritual death. It was mankind asserting that it is Lord rather than submitting to the fact that the creator is Lord. And unfortunately... This is what we as mankind are still doing. Defining good and evil on our own. It is denying God's obvious truth and fashioning God's in our own image. But unfortunately, it's not just pagan mankind that does this, is it? It is within the church as well. At our family camp this summer, I gave a devotional on the scene in Exodus 32 where the Israelites convinced Moses to make a likeness of Yahweh for them to worship. This is the God, by the way, that just 12 chapters earlier said, number one, don't have any other gods. Number two, don't make likenesses of me with creation. Number three, don't try and define my name or use my name to back something I haven't said. Those are paraphrases, by the way. But what did Israel do? Ah, we'll just break all three. And so you guys know the story. Exodus 32, 3 through 8. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, "'These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt.' When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, "'Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord.' And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, "'Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves.'" They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. They said they were worshipping Yahweh, because in the English translation, that is the name behind the capital L-O-R-D that are there in your Bible. Tomorrow shall be a feast to Yahweh. They weren't saying, let's cast aside Yahweh and worship a different god, They took their subjective experience, though, having been in bondage in Egypt for multiple generations, and they formed a god that made sense to them. They made a golden calf. This was not something they came up with in the moment. This was the Egyptian god Apis, or Apis, that was one of the most highly regarded deities in that culture of fertility, death, and the afterlife. They looked to what the world around them said, and they went, ah, this is pretty good, let's do that. They formed Apis and called it Yahweh. Question for you. How did God feel about that one? Did that go well? And this is where an appropriate shiver should go down our spine. Friends, this is what we do every day if we are not constantly fighting to stay in God's revealed truth about himself. For we will take our overbearing authority figures of our childhood and use that subjective experience to redefine God and even redefine what he expects of us as parents. We will take our sadness over a beloved friend or family member choosing to walk in blatant sin, and we will redefine God's opinion of sin, judgment of sin, and punishment of sin. We'll wipe it all out to create something new, because I can't believe in a God who. We will take our experience of someone else sinning against us, and we will make ourselves Lord to justify responding to that person in sin, or maybe justify calling God cruel. We will take our fear of having a hard conversation with someone, and we will redefine God and what he requires of us in that situation. Well, they're too sinful to hear what I have to say, so I won't go talk to them anyway, even though my Lord has commanded me to do so. We will have a gut feeling that we firmly believe in, and rather than just saying, I think or I feel, we will assign heavenly origin to it and say, I have a word given to me by God. The Lord has said to me, We do these things constantly in the church at large. And I fear that in doing these things in the church as a whole, we are not recognizing the horror that Paul is portraying in what he says mankind does by redefining who God is. When we're in sin and we hide from God, we suddenly tell him he's not good enough and we distance and then blame him. Brothers and sisters, we do all these things because we're redefining who God is. But we must recognize that simply because God has called us and saved us from our sin, simply because we hold his revealed truth in our hand, that does not mean that we are no longer prone to doing exactly what happened back in the garden. God forbid that we should refuse to acknowledge his place as Lord in our lives. The weight of this passage should cause us to mourn that we have ever had a part in this at all. But then, but then it should cause us to celebrate. Because if we understand the weight of what this is, if we truly grasp the rebellion that not only mankind foisted upon God, but you and I do every moment we take lordship over in our own lives, we will be brought so low that when the light of the gospel comes to us, it will immediately cause us to respond in all these things we've talked about, honor and glory and thanksgiving to God. Amen? It will cause us to realize that yes, God is a God. He is a Lord who can do with us whatever he pleases, but thanks be to him that he is not a despot. He is not a criminal. He is a good and gracious and compassionate and patient and wonderful Lord. It should cause us to celebrate the good news that God did not leave us in this voluntary chosen state. God would have been just in destroying his creation, but he didn't, and he doesn't. He didn't abandon his creation completely, but he asserted his rightful place as Lord. And he did it in a way that humanity can't even comprehend. For when we assert our lordship, we do do so through vengeance, anger, and hatred, strength that overpowers the weak. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is different. And he asserted his lordship in a way that shows that he is not some horrible, power-hungry God who cannot be trusted. It shows that he is the very one whom we should trust. He did it in a way where the fullness of his character of mercy and justice was displayed for all to see. And he even had grace and mercy in the fact that even though humanity was blind to it, he then illuminated the eyes and hearts of those who are his. And that's what we see in the rest of this text. For the gospel has revealed once and for all God's power as gracious Lord. It is the final word that cements it for all time. And he does this in two specific ways that undo and set right the work that his creation did in refusing to acknowledge his place as Lord. And this is both cosmic across the whole of creation, but then also specific for those who are his. Remember that creation denied his authority to define himself and then redefined who he is according to our subjective truth. So what God has done in the activity of Christ in the gospel is that he has defined and demonstrated once and for all who he is. And then secondly, he has asserted his authority as Lord. And we see this in the rest of the text. But let me point it out to you explicitly. Look at the two places where the gospel has revealed. The first one is in verse 17. For in it, and the it there is the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. But then also look at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed the wrath of God is revealed. Now, the wrath of God has a general revelation piece to it, as we just talked about. But it flows right out of the gospel. And the gospel is what will put the final word on this truth. And so we're gonna look at these two pieces of revelation here. Notice that what is revealed is first the righteousness of God and second the wrath of God. Now these would fall under the category, as I said, of special revelation as opposed to general revelation. The wrath has a general revelatory piece to it, but it also has a special revelation, as we'll see in a second. Now, this comes in the created order, this general revelation, right? General revelation is what was revealed by general creation to general humanity in a passive sense, in what is naturally seen and known. It comes in the created order, social institutions, such as family, and in the conscience. But special revelation is a bit different. It's active, and it must come from a supernatural rather than natural source or means. In the Old Testament and into Acts, as the apostolic authority was established, this happened through dreams and visions and prophecy from the mouth of God. But once the Word of God was established, and we'll see this more next week, there was no further need for special revelation outside of the Word of God and the apostolic authority of the church that handed it down. The word of God reveals to us the truth of God that has been suppressed by mankind in our rebellion. And so this special revelation of God's word reveals in words, but also in the action of Christ which it captures, the truth of who the creator God is. And it includes his righteousness and his power and authority. You can think, for example, of the fact that when he defines himself in summary... He uses this. This is from Exodus 34, 6-7. We go through this a lot because it is the core of who God is. It says, Yahweh passed before Moses and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now, this is the most quoted section of Scripture, by Scripture, in the whole rest of the Bible. Do you think that's important for us to know? Do you think God was saying, hey, guys, I'm trying to reveal to you the definition of who I am. It's the most quoted Scripture by the rest of Scripture in all of the Bible. Special revelation confirms and cements the truth that mankind and the adversary of God have tried to suppress. We've tried to shut this down. This is why I can ask people when I sit down with them, this is really broken down into two sections. Which one seems more right to you? And people will always choose one. Very rarely do people look and see the whole of God. They see the gracious, Birkenstock-wearing, toga wearing Jesus in the first half, and then they see the mean, bad dad God with the big beard and the lightning bolt in the second half. Do you realize that those are both False, because they don't include the other half. This is God in whole. Look at one of the places where it is repeated and quoted. This is from Jeremiah 32, 17 through 19. And notice what Jeremiah does as the intro. He says, in the midst of prophesying to rebellious Judah, Ah, Lord God, and the word there behind the God, right, Lord God, is Yahweh. It is to you, uh, it is you who have made the heavens. Notice he calls him creator. And the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. So he's talking about these same things, his divine ability to create, his power to be Lord over it and have authority. Nothing is too hard for you. You show steadfast love to thousands, but you repay the guilt of fathers to their children after them. O great and mighty God, whose name is the Lord of hosts, great in counsel and mighty indeed, whose eyes are open to all the ways of the children of man, rewarding each one according to his ways and according to the fruit of his deeds. Here Jeremiah is prophet to the people of God in Judah during a time where God is pouring out his wrath upon them by sending them into exile in Babylon. And yet, even with that slap across the head of the impending army of Babylon, the prophets of Judah are lying about God. You can go read this section on your own. They're saying that he is not actually angry. He doesn't mind the things that are going on. And really, all that the God of the Jews intends for them is prosperity, peace, and love, in spite of their blatant sin and refusal to repent. Does that sound familiar at all? It was a false gospel then, and it's a false gospel now. And so Jeremiah is sent to proclaim in their midst, you guys are refusing to acknowledge God's place as Lord. He even starts his statement with that title. And notice what he connects it to, just as Paul does in Romans 1, his place as creator. And so we need special revelation from God's hand to break through our suppression of the truth. We do it we do it automatically. And Paul focuses on two things that are specially revealed by God through the truth of the gospel, his righteousness and his wrath. First, the righteousness of God. This means that the rightness of God, the wholeness of God, and the holiness of God is proclaimed. This is the core of God's character. This is the faithfulness and steadfast covenant love of God, the patience, the compassion, the mercy, and the grace of God. But how can God keep covenant faithfulness to a created humanity who, down to the last individual, has rebelled against him and dismissed his place as Lord? When our predisposition is to rebel against him, we can't just one day change our opinion on our own and decide to follow him and submit to him. That's what the text has said. We innately cannot do it. And so there must be some divine power that intervenes. That is how God keeps his covenant faithfulness. Notice Paul's words about the gospel in verse 16. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Friends, this is why hearts are changed by preaching the gospel alone. You won't change hearts by apologetics, you won't change hearts by debating on Facebook. Does anybody use Facebook anymore? (laughs) Whatever social media. (laughs) Friends, you won't even change hearts by being the kindest, most loving, outreaching church in Salem. People's hearts are not changed except by the preaching of the gospel by me and by you, by his people. And it is through the gospel that the power of God intervenes for salvation to everyone who believes. You know why? Because the gospel is Jesus' Lord, and those who are under his lordship go, yeah, you're right, praise God. And those who are not go, I want nothing to do with that. The grammatical tense for the word believes here is what is called the dative tense. It means something that is actively received, the one who receives belief actively received. And Paul doubles down on this in the next line. It is then revealed from faith for faith, or as the NASB says, from faith to faith. Special revelation from God is something we are given, not something we choose to understand. And then the crux of the issue, taken from the Old Testament prophet Habakkuk, the righteous shall live by faith, or as the footnote in your Bible most likely puts it even better, the one who by faith is righteous shall live. God shows his righteousness, his compassion, his mercy, his steadfast love by saying to those who are his, I'm going to save you. And by saving them, those to whom he is committed to save from time immemorial, he will have mercy upon whom he has mercy. And he shows that mercy through the power of the gospel preached by faithful Christians in faithful churches, hopefully ours and many others like ours around the world. For the proclamation that Jesus is king awakens the heart that has been saved to bring it to salvation. But then notice that secondly, his wrath is also actively revealed from heaven. Very rarely do you hear this as part of God's special revelation. We hear it as general revelation. But it's revealed against those who refuse God's authority. And those who then redefine who he is and what he believes is good and evil. These are known as the unrighteous. And by their idolatry and their immorality that flows from it, mankind suppresses the truth and actively works to remove the truth of God, who God actually is. We must be aware that this is the neutral gear of the human heart since the fall. Friends, this is why we pay attention to old dead people who wrote. It's not like better revelation is going to come as the church goes on. We go back to the apostolic truth and we look at what trends through the church, not what things pop up 500, 600, 1,000, 1,500 years into the church because our tendency is to go away from and suppress the truth, so we must go back to the core of what it is. And so we must be aware of this and fight against it. Paul then goes on to say that what wrath looks like, and it is not, as we might assume, causing havoc in your life that wouldn't normally be there. Look at verses 24 and 25 as to what that wrath is. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who's blessed forever. Amen. We were worshiping the things that have been made rather than the maker. We were worshiping ourselves in our own supposed wisdom and power rather than the truth that God is Lord. And so in wrath, in just wrath, God gives us over and surrenders us to this lie. It is just of him to give us over, to give you over to the lies you believe. And this, brothers and sisters, is his righteous judgment in which he confirms and cements that he is the authority. He is the judge. And we can complain and discredit his character all we want. But in so doing, we are reinforcing the truth that we deserve the judgment that he is bringing. The prophet Isaiah proclaims this same truth in Isaiah 45, 8 through 9. Shower, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, I, Yahweh, have created it. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earth and pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making or your work has no handles? Guys, we are nothing but clay. And so the second we have an iota of response to God of, I could never believe in a, but I don't like, I'm not so sure I agree with. Science tells us our current culture is enlightened, and we know we might as well just stop. We've already proved before we even get to the content. We have said to the potter, you can't make pots like this. How ludicrous that is. Absolutely ludicrous. Now notice, friends, the order here. Jesus taught and the apostles reinforced that the way the world and the kingdom of darkness uses power is that they enforce their power through wrath and violence and strength. They take power and expect service. And many of us, even in hearing me preach this morning, you might be going, I don't know that I like this God. He just takes power, he's powerful, he's strong, he's authoritative. Oh my goodness, this reminds me of my bad dad or whatever it is. But he's not your bad dad. (laughs) Nor is he a bad politician. Nor was he your bad coach. Nor was he any bad authority figure you have ever had Stop turning him into it. He is so much better than that. In fact, he is the antithesis of that. Because notice that Jesus' kingdom takes power in reverse. He lovingly provided all that humanity could ever desire without cost. He was our friend, our father, and our provider. And in spite of that, our response in the garden and in our hearts most days is to deny his authority, redefine him to be in our image and under our authority. Rather than judging us and destroying us, which would have been totally justified, He worked out a plan of salvation. He sent his son to earth providing the most clear understanding of his character possible. And he was murdered for it because we wanted to be judged. And it was out of a motivation to have power over him and silence the truth that he was speaking because he did not fit our understanding or definition of a savior. The Jews wanted a politician that would remove the Romans. And so let's murder him because he doesn't fill our bill. The Greeks didn't like that he maybe was competing with Caesar, so let's get rid of him. How often do we do the very same thing when we say in our minds and hearts, I'm not so sure I like this God who? I don't really like that line in the Bible. That one doesn't make sense to me, so we're right there with them. And then he took that death upon the cross in our place, in the very place of those who were taking away his authority or attempting to and redefining who he is. He took your place and he took mine. And he took the judgment and wrath that we we rightly deserve for our part in this cosmic rebellion. And then he was raised from the dead three days later because his authority is absolute. He is the one that determines truth. He is the one that gives life and defeats death. And he proved it in his resurrection. He proved... In so doing, his right to be judge over those who refuse his authority and deny honor due to his name. And so the biblical imagery is that he ascended to the judgment throne of the Father, the ancient of days, the creator of creation, and he was given authority over the kingdom inhabited by those he was saving and those who would submit to his loving rule as Lord. Through the work and gospel of Jesus, the anointed king, God has revealed himself as savior to those he has committed to save and as judge to those he has committed to judge. He is just in his judgment because all creation deserves his wrath. He is merciful in his salvation because none of creation deserves his grace. Friend, which one have you received? The proclamation of the gospel will do one of two things. It will harden your hearts further and further from the truth reinforcing and entrenching your heart in a determination to be your own Lord and to hold everyone accountable to your power and your rule, or it will soften your heart further and further towards the truth, reinforcing and entrenching your heart in a humility in which you realize you and I are Lord over no one, praise God, not even yourself, and especially not your spouse. Amen? And this will bring you freedom like no other when you realize you're not Lord. Then you just get to be his creation who is loved and cherished and saved. You see, friends, raising your hand to say that you wanna be saved from condemnation is something anyone and everyone can do. Altar calls that say, do you wanna go to hell? Who would be like, yeah, send me there? Well, maybe some people, but most people would say, no, I don't want condemnation. But raising your hand to say, yes, actually, I acknowledge that Jesus is my Lord and then walking in that fact until the day that you stand before him in death, that's something that can only be done by those whose hearts have truly been saved by Christ. Yes, I want to live in a way that gives my entire life up to the Lord in complete and absolute trust. That can only come from the Spirit of God. And so my question for each of you in this room today and even for myself is, do you declare that he is your Lord. We preach the gospel to anyone and everyone because it is the power to save, and we have no idea of who the Lord has saved and who he has judged. We simply declare the good news that God has revealed himself as Lord in Jesus Christ. And this is objectively good news. Hear me. This is objectively good news regardless of an individual's response to it. To the saved heart, Jesus' Lord is great news that brings forth submission and humility. To the rebellious heart, Jesus' Lord is great news that brings forth further fight and further anger and further doubt of God's good character. It's still good news. This is why Paul could say that every knee will bow. Because Jesus' Lord is good news no matter who receives it or who doesn't. Do you realize, friends, that it would still have been good news if not one human were saved. But how much we've adjusted the focus of what the good news is because it's about who? Me. The good news is that Jesus is Lord, regardless of whether or not you accept it. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Friends, this is not a universalist statement. People will not say Jesus is Lord because they all are saved. Some will do it in salvation. Some will do it in wrath. And Paul says that this is what occurred because of the good news. And so, friend, I ask you this morning, will you bow the knee having been conquered by the good and loving Jesus By his death on the cross in your place? By his resurrection that draws you to life? Or will you bow the knee one day having been judged and given over to the sin that asserts your lordship over your life and everyone else around you? If you find yourself fighting against the truth of God's goodness and righteousness as revealed so clearly in his gospel, if you find yourself doubting God's goodness because your life is not what you would like it to be, if you find yourself in conflict with those who are trying to point you to God's truth, then friend, you are presented here with a crossroads this morning. You can continue in the hardness of your heart, full well knowing that you are inviting the wrath of God upon yourself and he will give you over to it. Or you can surrender to his loving lordship in a way that you have never known before. And so I ask you to respond today that you will serve him and bow to his lordship from this day forward and then give him thanks for this choice is the gracious gift of God given to you by the power of his gospel through the work of the Holy Spirit. God has revealed himself as Lord. Amen? Amen. And this is good news. Amen? Amen? This is a truth that deserves a response for it will set the foundation for all the rest of what we understand if we are going to walk in the truth of God's word and his commands to us. No longer will we approach the word of God as an editor. But we will approach the word of God and say, yes, Lord, you know best. This is what it is to submit to God's truth of himself as Lord. And then we're to live that truth out in our daily life, asking at every moment, what does my Lord require of me at this moment? And when we encounter difficulty, realizing that we probably need to ask in those moments, who is acting as Lord in this situation? Am I attempting to be, or is it Christ? And we will tease out this application even further as we continue, but today... Perhaps there are situations in your life right now. Perhaps there are relationships in which you are striving because you are trying to be Lord. What does it look like today as we go into communion for you to lay those at the feet of Jesus and confess, Lord, I've been attempting to be Lord and it's not going well. Please take over control of my life, change my heart to be your servant, help me to walk. In your lordship. Sounds simplistic, but the most difficult thing in our humanity to do. And so we must each cry out to the Lord to give us his power through his gospel and through his Holy Spirit so we can apply this today. Amen? For now, one of the main ways that Christ gave us to proclaim that he is our Lord is to declare with our communal action that he is the provider of grain and grape, bread and cup, just as he is the provider of salvation from death. And so we're going to do so now through the taking of the Lord's table that he has provided. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your goodness. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the good news that Jesus, you are Lord. It's amazing how we have adjusted that to make it about us. But all goodness flows from that statement that you are Lord over your creation. And therefore, you will right the wrongs and bring justice to bear. And therefore, you will show grace and mercy to whom you show grace and mercy, declaring your character in such a wonderful, amazing way. But Lord, we still today, even as Christians who are saved, many of us in this room, we still attempt to redefine who you are. And we do so out of rebellion, and so we confess it to you this morning. Lord, it is so easy to do. And that is not an excuse, it's just a reality. And so we come to you as beggars this morning, begging that you, by your Holy Spirit, would change our hearts, would remove the, uh, the desire to be Lord and help us to come to your word not as editors, as we said, but as subjects wanting to understand your truth. Lord, we pray that this would be the case in our morning devotions in our time together as families in devotion, as, as a church family here on Sunday, in our Bible studies, our discipleship groups, our community groups. Help us not to be Editors who debate with one another what the best edit is of the word, but instead to come to the word and to bow before it and to ask who you are and what you have asked of us. Lord, we pray in humble submission to you that you would do that work in our hearts and that as we take communion, it wouldn't just be a tradition that we do. It wouldn't be something that we think garners your attention and love and salvation, but it is something that declares that you are our Lord. Help that to be the case this morning in this church, we pray.